We're in chapter 27 of the book of Genesis, and this is the last chapter, uh, chapter 27, is the last chapter that deals with Isaac. As you know, the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and each one of these narratives focuses on the patriarchs and gives us the kind of warts and all story. Although Isaac is the patriarch here, the father and so on, what it really <clears throat> what it really is doing is again stressing the duplicity and deceitfulness of Jacob. Now, if you remember, uh, let's just review a couple of things. The word Jacob, Jacob in Hebrew, means heel catcher, conniver. That's what the word means. I mean, can you imagine naming a child conniver? <laughs> but it's, uh, it's one of those uh, very unusual names. And, of course, that today is a very, very, very famous name, a well-known lots of Jews name their children Jacob. But Jacob has a character flaw. He will inherit the promise. Uh, the prophecy, the oracle, the prophetic statement God made to Rebekah is you have two nations in your womb that will war against each other, but the younger will rule over the older. Remember that? And it is now fulfilled in these chapters, but what we see is Jacob, and to, to a degree his mother, is very complicit in this deceitful act, Rebekah. Um, he will get it, but he'll get it his way. And so it's it's a story, it's, and it, the, the focus is on how a man like Jacob, who has great gifts but has a significant character flaw, causes all kinds of difficulties. Jacob gets what he wants, but the result is terrible. It's cataclysmic. We'll see that again, and that's why it's all heading, these next chapters are heading to Genesis 32, where God will break Jacob of this character flaw. But we're not there yet. This is just heightening it. Now, it actually is introduced, I believe we might have covered this, it's actually introduced by just the concluding two verses of chapter 26 about Esau. Esau's 40 years old. He took Judith, the daughter of Bari, the Hittite, and Bashmuth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. So all it's is just making a comment. There's no, there's no reflection. It's just stating it. But remember... Esau, and he marries two Hittite women. If they're Hittite women, that means they're outside any kind of covenant blessing. And that's why verse 35 says, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah, created a bitter spirit within them, because they saw their son Esau do something that was a horrific decision. Now, Isaac. When Isaac was old, verse 1 of chapter 27, Isaac is about 100 years old here. His eyes were dim, obviously meaning he is losing his sight. He called Esau his older son and said to him, my son, and he answered here, I am, that you, remember, we've seen that many times in the book of Genesis. Here I am, he said, behold, I'm old. I do not know the day of my death, meaning that I think I'm going to die soon. It's kind of what that idiom means. 
Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, go into the field and hunt game for me. The Hebrew word for game there is actually venison. So it's like a deer. Hunt, so he, he loves, presumably, he loves that to be cooked. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat. We stop there for just a minute. And so what, what you see here is Esau the hunter, he's been a hunter all his life, and Isaac, even though Jacob had gotten the birthright, had stolen it, if you will, but for a bowl of parch, the real focus of that story is how Esau treated with such derision such a very, very, very important birthright. And so now the focus again is on Isaac appealing to Esau. Isaac, yeah. Isaac apparently isn't aware that Jacob got the birthright. Is that correct? Or why would he call... Well, I'm rather certain he does know that East, or that uh, Jacob now has the birthright. But we learned that earlier uh, when the two boys are born and so on. Isaac loves Esau, whereas Rebekah loves Jacob. So this is a very divided family. And uh, it really does, I'm going to comment on that when we're done with this particular chapter, it really does teach us a lesson on the dangers of parental favoritism. I mean, that's not the main point of this narrative, but it's an important conclusion we can reach. And so Jacob, or excuse me, uh, Isaac is just acting naturally here. This is just his preference is Esau. Esau, you're the hunter. You know I love venison. Go out and shoot a deer for me and cook it. I'm old, and then he tells it. That's why I stopped it. But the end of verse 4 is the purpose clause. That my soul may bless you before I die. Now, it's, there are two things there that are very, very interesting. Number one, how Isaac puts it, that my soul, that's a very, very unusual way to put this. That I, the patriarch of the family, want to bless you. No, that's not it. That my soul here. You know, this is an NIV, and it, and and it says, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. So, I like, it, uh, I like yours better. Well, it, it, that is really, the NIV does not mention soul there, that my soul. No. Is no. that right? That's really interesting. Well, see, remember that the NIV is a dynamic equivalent translation, so it doesn't always capture every single word. It's just trying to get, that's really, that's, a, that's unusual that they don't catch that, even to mention it. That really so needs to be. Soul on your I just have soul yes. that I may bless you it doesn't have soul. Okay. Uh, American yes. standard. It's very close to the King James. It yes, it does. Huh? Yes, it does. Does it? Okay. That's, yes, that's what I'm using uh, here. It's the, it is there. It's nephesh. That Hebrew word is there in the text. That my nephesh may bless you before I die. And so what it, 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 it's hard. What does that mean? Why does he put it that way? What he's saying to Esau is in the depths of my heart, it is my heart's desire to bless you. So he's really saying something very penetrating here and very personal here. And it's evidence, again, that he prefers Esau. And some commentators and expositors suggested, I I don't know if that's accurate because we don't know, but it seems reasonable. (coughs) He knows that Jacob has gotten the birthright. 
he wants to make sure Esau gets his blessing. Now, this is the other item here is that bless you before I die. This is an interesting ancient Near Eastern custom and tradition and practice that is very foreign to us. But let's review a couple of things. Number one, Esau is the firstborn. Number two, in the, in the Jewish culture of this time, to bless somebody is in effect a prayer to God on behalf of this son. And what Esau, or excuse me, what Isaac wants to do is in effect at the bottom of his heart, it is his heart's desire to bless his firstborn, even though Jacob has gotten a birthright. And he wants to pray to the Lord as a blessing that will be poured out on Esau, that Esau will get all of the blessings deserved to him by God as the firstborn. But what had God said? The younger shall rule over the older. So we could ask it this way. Is it God's desire that Esau received the blessing of the firstborn? No. But is it God's desire that Jacob manipulate, connive, deceive to get what God promised him? No. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, this, is this, this is this tension that you see in so many parts of the book of Genesis. God makes a promise that you know, because he's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, that promise will come about. But sometimes you watch these human beings trying to get that, and they adopt the ethic, the end justifies the means. No matter how I get it, God will bless. Now, God is going to ensure that Jacob is the covenant blessing channel. He is the one who inherit the covenant. It's not going to be Esau. But in a very real sense, it's a test for Jacob. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to depend on me to give you the blessing? And Jacob and Rebekah say, nah, you need some help, God. We're going to do it. So it's really, it's, it's this tension that's created among these patriarchs. And this is one of the very valuable dimensions of Scripture. The Bible always presents these people, warts and all. It presents them with all their character flaws, just like you and I have character flaws. And God still will bless in spite of. There will be consequences. There are massive consequences in Jacob's life because of how he does these things. And he will have to live with those consequences. But this tension that is created here in the narrative. And then we learn something else in verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Is she eavesdropping? Is she purposely hanging around to find out what's going on? The text doesn't tell. It doesn't explain it to us. It just says, she heard what he said. So now Rebecca goes into action. Because who's her favorite? Jacob. 
Now, when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game, there for me delicious food, that I may eat it, and bless before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, this is Rebekah speaking to Jacob, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare them for them from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. So here's the plan. Rebecca the mother, overwhelmed with the thought that Esau may get the blessing and not her son Jacob, who deserves it according to what God has said, instead of saying, Lord, now you, I heard that. So what she should have done is going to the Lord, I heard what the, J, Isaac just said. Now, Lord, you know that's not what you promised me. You promised me that Jacob, the younger, will rule over the old. That's what you promised me, Lord. But what I'm hearing Isaac say to Esau, Lord, how's that going to come? She doesn't do that. She takes it into her own hands. Is that faith? That is not a life of faith. Rebecca is not exhibiting a life of faith here. She is exhibiting a life of self-dependence, dependence on self, and she, along with her son Jacob, are the classic examples of Frank Sinatra's great hit song, My Way. I did it my way. And so she hatches this plan. Yes, Rob. How do we reconcile that with Christ's admonition that we are his hands and feet? That we're expected to take action where we believe it's in the righteous, just God's cause. Okay, I'm hearing your words, but I'm, I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. Would you just repeat again? I have discussions with my fairly uh, political friends, but that doesn't matter. I have discussions with my friends about, well, should I pray for this right outcome, or should I take action? And I tell them that you do both. You pray and you take action, you look for God's direction in your life. Remember, and I usually quote that, that verse, we are in his hands and feet, therefore okay. we are supposed to take action. Okay. So this is saying, yeah, it's, this is, it gets the prayer aspect. It's like, and, and, I, and I, I don't think the two conflict, but I'm looking for a little expert interpretation. <laughs> well, that modifier expert, I don't know if that fits here, but I think one of the things that, that is important for us, and I, I, now I hear what you're saying, I understand what your question is. Uh, you're right. I mean, to pray and to trust God and so on. But in our action, as we respond and respond, uh, presumably in loving obedience to the Lord, I don't think the Lord is approving of duplicitous, deceitful, manipulative ways to get to that. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, that's why, and this is, I, I teach an ethics class, and I've written a book on ethics. I, I think this is a very significant challenge for us as Christians. As Christians, do we buy the ethic of the end justifies the means? Do we buy that? I mean, you understand what I mean, end justifies, you understand what I mean, that means, don't you? That's a, that is a prevailing ethic in our world, in our culture. I mean, it really is. Okay, I have a good end, and that good end presumably is a righteous end. So, does it matter how I get there? Is God interested only in the end? 
Or is God interested in how you get to the end? Or another way of saying it, the goal. I don't see anything in the Bible that justifies manipulative, duplicitous, dishonest, conniving, controlling means to get to the end. So it matters the means we use. And that's where the struggle is. That's where the tension is for us as, as, as believers living in a fallen, broken world where there are many, many, many ways you can get to a very, very good goal. And you ask yourself, is God interested in how I get to that goal? And the answer has to be, yes, I, I give my students a, a whole series of case studies, one case study a week. And those case studies are those kinds of situations in life where there is no simple answer. I mean, it, it, it requires a tremendous amount of thought and application of the key standards in God's word of how you live and how you resolve some of these. One is a, one is a case study of a Christian policeman who goes undercover to break up a drug cartel. And what that means is he has to take on a new identity. He does things that are dishonest because he has to win the support of the drug lord. And I just, that's a great case study. And you ask the question, can a Christian, can a Christian do something like that? Because that's, and just the means is, you want to end the drug cartel in the city. Is that all right, you use any means to get to that. And, you know, it raised questions like some of the students, are, well, then can a Christian be in the CIA? Can a Christian work for the national, uh, what's the spy, national NSA? Can they work for undercover work in a, in, 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 a, in a local police force? I mean, it raises the kinds of issues that, well, I don't see anything in the Bible that would say a Christian couldn't serve in the CIA. But how you serve, and what, I mean, it really raises these kinds of questions that most believers sitting in a church never even think of. But they should, because that's the real world. You are constantly faced with ethical choices. That involves not a, and a great answer, by the way. <laughs> and it helped me to kind of look at something that I've been thinking about in a different way. So. Well, I think that's, God has left us here. You know, Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, when they come to faith in me, don't take them home. I wish he wouldn't have prayed that, you know. Don't take them home, Father. Instead, as you sent me into the world, send them into the world. That we're sent into the world to represent Christ, and it matters how we live our lives. Do any of your case studies uh, include examples of war? And I'm, I'm thinking of World War II, where we were, we were a Christian nation. We fought to defend Western civilization, which depends on Christianity, depends on accountability for nation. And part of the aspects of winning a war are things like <clears throat> surprise attacks, which involve deception, uh, espionage, that certainly Absolutely. You know, gets back to your Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and we part of that is to get to get the students to start thinking about another ethical question when you're dealing with military issues. Is there such a thing as a just war? And what are the criteria for a just war? And historically, since Augustine was this theologian of the 400s, there have been six criteria developed for how you think as a Christian about the just war. 
And uh, that's good. It's good for the students to wrestle with that. And some students come, some of them come from Anabaptist traditions where they're pacifists. Some come from a strong Catholic tradition where natural law is very important to them. And it's really, it's really fascinating to get these students really processing and thinking about this. So what was the reference you mentioned? Is there a, 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 a book or a paper or something that deals with these six criteria? Oh, yes, yes. Um, there, are, there are a number of books. Uh, there's a very good one called Christi, uh, Christian Ethics in a Postmodern World. Oh. Uh, it's a book I wrote in case, but, and I have a chapter on war. But if you if you don't want to read that one, uh, there are um, a book by a man by the name of Geisler, G E I S L E R. Norman Geisler has written a book. It's called simply Christian Ethics. Uh, he has a magnificent chapter on that. Another one is uh, by uh, two brothers, John and Paul Feinberg, called. Uh, ethics for a Brave New World, which is a pretty thick ethics text. They have two chapters on this issue. So you have the situation now where Rebecca has heard what Isaac has said to Esau. She hatches this plan, but look at verse 11. But Jacob, he's hesitating. Why? Because he raises moral, ethical questions? Or because he's afraid of getting caught? But Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, brother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall be seem to him, be mocking him and bring a curse, not a blessing. So Jacob isn't raising an ethical issue. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's raising, what if I get caught? Which is not really the ethical consideration. I mean, to a degree it is. Please. Is it Oh, what if I get caught, or is it curse? Well, if I get caught, and then my father will curse me, not bless me. That seems like that's well, that's it. I mean, he's afraid of getting caught, because if he gets caught, Isaac will hurl a, a curse at him, not a blessing. So, I, don't, I mean, I, the reason I'm saying this is I don't want you to elevate Jacob here. Say, Jacob's the good guy in Rebecca's bed. No. The only concern Jacob has is, I understand, it's a great plan, Mom, but what if I get caught? And Isaac blesses, doesn't bless me, he curses me. And so he writes, his mother said, let your curse be on me, my son. Obey my voice. Go bring them to me, meaning the goats. So, I mean, this is, this is mother, mother and son. This is a, just a real interesting. And so Jacob does what his mother told him to do. So verse 14, so he went and took them and brought them to his mother. I don't know, I'm not... I've never eaten goat, but can... It's actually pretty good. Is that good? I mean, is goat similar to venison? It's I mean, not venison. Not yeah. Just really, I mean, when you think of the comparison with that, okay. would he not understand? That's what I mean. A guy who loves venison, could he not tell the difference between venison and goat? I don't know. But anyway. Maybe, maybe it's all the things she threw into the stew. I don't know. And that's not the main point, man. That this isn't the main point, but... It just yeah, and I, I, I don't think it's really mentioned about the relationship between Isaac and Rebecca. But can we infer that they were not necessarily maybe close? That their kids. I I yes, I I believe I believe we can infer that that this is now they're older here, of course. I mean, he's a, about a hundred or so, 
But uh, yes, I think we, we should infer that this is not a real close close relationship at this point. It's rather distant. And he's older, he cannot see very well. So that, And I, I'm not trying to necessarily impugn either one of their characters at this point. But I think that's probably, that's probably accurate. The, the, their boys have taken the priority for them. Which can ver- that's a that's not an unusual thing to happen in a family. As those of you, that is a very normal thing to sometimes happen. That as kids grow, the kids take place of, and then when the kids finally leave the home, mom and dad are staring at each other and say, "Who are you? I haven't seen you for twenty five years. Uh, what was this all about? You know." And, it, and I'm serious. That can be a real issue. There's geriatric counseling is a real serious issue, where when when kids get out of the house and they're completely gone, particularly if they move away and so on, it'd be a real challenge for a husband and wife. And we're making a little more of this, but I think that is a correct inference to draw. Um, yep, John. Rebecca is is a real conniver. She is. So, she very much is. So maybe some of that drifts over to uh, to Jacob. I think, well, I think so. I mean, it, it, you. this is, again, not an unusual dynamic Jacob is taking on the temperament of his mother, and Isaac takes on the temperament of his dad. That is not an unusual thing to happen either. Okay, what happened? So verse 15, Then Rebekah took the best garments of, of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. So now she wants to make Esau, Jacob a substitute Esau. That's what she wants. The skins of the young goat she put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck, it's, it's hard, it's really hard, when I was studying this, it's hard to get kind of a mind picture of what this would have looked like. I mean, it really is, but it, if he's a hunter and hairy, I mean, you could, the goat, if I'm correct, a goat doesn't have long hair. It, it's not a long-haired animal. But it's the kind, it's rough, and it's coarse, and so somehow she wrapped it, so that he's blind, he can't see. So this, this is what, the things naturally he would touch his neck. That's where he'll kiss him and give the blessing. And in verse 17, so he's dressed to be like Esau. He's the substitute Esau. Now then she puts the delicious food and the bread as she prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And by that question, by that question, we must infer that he has a doubt for two reasons, as you're going to see in a minute. It wasn't that long since he had asked his sons to go out and hunt. Because it's almost like there's this in, in, incredulous response. Who, who are you, my son? It's almost like, man, it hasn't been very long since we talked. I don't mean it's an hour. And the other thing is obviously the tone of voice. So there's, there's doubt here in, in, in Isaac's voice. So 19, Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your brother. I am Esau, excuse me, your firstborn. Now that's really important because the blessing is the blessing of the firstborn. And so this is an outright deceptive lie. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. Quoting what Isaac had said to Esau several verses earlier. Verse 20, but Isaac said to his son, How 
is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? Meaning, wasn't too long ago we talked. You've been successful in the hunt already? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Man, that's not only a lie, that's blasphemy. Jacob has just blasphemed God. So his first deception is an outright lie. The second part of his deception is he has blasphemed God. But he says, your God. That's right. And he doesn't say, my God. He says, your God. But I mean, that, that's, it's not only a lie. It's outright blasphemy. The Lord God had absolutely nothing to do with this. He didn't bless him in the hunt. He didn't go hunting. He got two of the goats from his father's. Well, you know that. So, I mean, here, it's just showing you the depths to which this duplicity has gone. He's now willing to blaspheme God. And Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son, Esau. Again, you see this continued questioning and doubt of Isaac. So Jacob went near to his father, who felt him and said, This voice is Jacob's voice, but these hands are Esau's. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son, Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it, he ate, brought him wine, he drank. And verse 26, and his father said to him, come near, kiss me, my son. A very, it's a deferential act, a typical ancient Near Eastern act. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. Now there are four parts to this blessing. I want you to notice them. Most of your Bibles, most of your translations, it's indented. It's going to be indented. But it's a four-part blessing. Blessing number one, see the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. It's an affirmation of the past blessing of God on Esau. Remember, this isn't Esau. But he's, the, the first part of the blessing is affirming that God is with you, Esau. God has blessed you. The smell that I smell of you is the smell of the field, the smell of animals. God has blessed you. So this leads him to the second blessing, verse 28, which is a blessing of fertility. May God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. The blessing, and remember, a prayer of a father for his firstborn. Sorry, the blessing of a father for the firstborn is a prayer to God. That's really what it is. And so he is saying on behalf of, he thinks it's Esau, but it's really Jacob. He says on behalf of his son, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you with immeasurable fertility, the dew of the heavens, the fatness of the earth, meaning the productivity and the plenty of grain and wine. The grain that comes from the, from the crops, the wine that comes from the vineyard, may they be, be the blessing, plenty. Third blessing, 
Let people serve you and bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. People serve you. Nations bow down to you. That's the covenantal blessing that was made to Abraham. Now Isaac is sending it to his son, now Jacob. The nations will serve you, bow down to you. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. In other words, all of the children of Rebekah will bow down. He thinks it's Esau, but it's Jacob. And then blessing number four is what God had said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm making you all these promises, and here is the key solidifier and certainty of the promise. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So God, excuse me, Isaac is repeating this to Jacob, repeating what God had said to Abraham and is as a prayer. So you have this four-part blessing. It's, it's remarkable. He thinks it's Esau, but it's really Jacob. So Jacob gets what he wanted. To put it another way, Rebecca gets what she wants. The firstborn blessing from Isaac. So this fits with the covenantal relationship that God has with these patriarchs. What Isaac is saying here is legitimate, it fits, but that's not the point. The point is it's Jacob, and he thinks it's Esau. But Jacob now has it. So Jacob got the birthright by making stew, and Esau, the stupid one, was willing to give it up for a bowl of soup. But that pales in significance to this, because now Isaac has given Jacob, again thinking it's Esau, giving him the covenant blessing of the firstborn, but the covenant blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is now applied to Jacob's life. So, now what happens? Everybody walks into the sunset hand in hand, praising God. That is not what happens. All right, any questions? Yeah, or wrong? Uh, I know I brought this up before, but it still bugs me, so please forgive me. When... Jacob blasphemed God. Did he pay with his soul? No. By that mean eternal? No, 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 I don't think so. You're going to see that in the next chapter, uh, yeah, chapter 28. Uh, as you, you probably know, Jacob is, is going to fear for his life. Because when Esau finds out what happens, Esau says, I'm going to kill my brother. And so Jacob flees. And what you see is Jacob is, is, he flees the Negev area where his father lives um, and heads north. He begins to question, what is my status? You know, I've done what I shouldn't have done. And that's when God, it's a very, very, very important chapter. It's that ladder or steps, it's hard to translate the Hebrew word, but that ladder between heaven and earth. And there Jacob is, Jacob hears from God, in effect, despite your duplicity and dishonesty, 
you still are the channel of blessing. So no, I don't think there's an eternal, but again, God is not going to ignore this. God is going to deal with this in Jacob's life, and that's Genesis 32. That's when God deals with this. That Jacob is coming back into the promised land. Uh, His, you know, he's been up there with Laban for 14 years. Now it's time to come back, and he's absolutely shaking his boots. As soon as I cross into the promised land, there'll be Esau. And he gets word from one of his servants, Esau's coming, he has 400 men with him. And Jacob isn't, well, this is a welcoming party, we're going to have coffee and tea as a cry. No, they're there to kill me. And I mean, he's absolutely terrified. And then that's when God meets him. But that's, we're getting there. We're working our way there. All right, now, um, we got about 15 minutes, so we're in good shape, but I'd, I'd love, I'd love to finish this chapter. I think God would be really delighted if we could. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, verse 30, when Jacob had scarcely gone out of the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. He said to his father, let my father rise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. You imagine. (laughs) Isaac, he's old, hundred, he's blind. Father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Now the verbs here are really intense in the Hebrew. Then he, Isaac, trembled very violently. Now, in other words, Isaac now realizes what has happened. And he said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate before you came and I blessed him? Yes, he shall be blessed. Verse 34. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. So you have this very intense response of Isaac Now you have the very intense and understandable response of Esau. And the Hebrew there is very, these are very intense words. And he said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. This is what Isaac says. Your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. This is the dark side of Jacob's character. Isaac now realizes it, and Esau has found out about it. And Esau said, is he not rightly called Jacob? Remember what that means, heel catcher, conniver, because he cheated me. These two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Now don't don't completely be on Esau's side here. Because remember, he took away my birthright. Well now, Esau, let's talk about that a little bit. You treated that so dismissively, you gave it away for a bowl of soup. But, you know, all Esau's doing is focusing on what has happened. He's lost the two most important 
aspects of his life as the firstborn to his brother. God said that was going to happen. But God did not legitimize the means to that end. And now Jacob is going to have to live with the consequences as well as Esau. Then he said, verse 36, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said, Behold, I have... I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What can I do for you, my son? And Esau said, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. You can just imagine the emotion in his voice, maybe violent tears, we don't know. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. This is the dark side of what Jacob has done. And Isaac, his father, answered and said, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Very significant blessing. I mean... Away from the fatness of the earth, away from the dew of the heavens, is just the opposite of what Jacob. You're, by the sword you shall live. Esau, you're going to live a very violent life, but you're going to serve your brother. But when you break away from your brother, then you will leave. And Esau will break the yoke of Jacob, leave the Negev, and found the nation of Edom. Now this is going to happen. This will happen. And he will form, the, he will go south of the Dead Sea, which is where Edom is, in the Red Mountains of Edom. And, and so he will, when he leaves and forms this nation. But you know, that verse 40 is not quite the same blessing that Jacob got, is it? No, but is it a blessing of it, it is a blessing, it is. It is a blessing. But it's... Um, it's filled with some negatives. You know, I mean, it's not the same blessing. The earth is not going to be fertile for you. You're not going to enjoy the do of that. No. You're going to be a man of the sword, you're, you're, but you, you will be successful at that, but you're still going to serve your brother, but you will break the yoke of your brother. And he will. He will leave Jacob. When Jacob went back from Patamaran, and he welcomes back into the promised land, and Jacob begins, then he will leave. They will leave peacefully. But Jacob, or rather Esau, will go and form a new nation. It's the nation of Edom. And I, you, I think you know enough of Edom is never going to be a friend of Israel. Throughout the history, it will never be a friend of Israel. And when the Israelites come out of Egypt and get the law down at Sinai and start to make their way up on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, the Edomites are going to say to them, you cannot come through our land. And so they have to go around them. So it's not, clearly it's not the covenant. No, at all, not at all. And the Edomites, and what the Edomites will partially be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and then after Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem, and they will move into the southern part of Judea and form Idumea. What great king comes from Idumea? Herod. Herod 
King Herod, the Herod that was king when Jesus was born. Herod is an Edomite. He's an Edomian. So, I mean, you see, this is a lot of connections you can make with all this stuff. And it all starts here with the dysfunction of a family. And the implications of that are very significant. Now, verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning from my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. You understand what he's saying? When my dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. I won't kill him while my dad's still living. When my dad dies, I'm going to kill him. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. Now, he has, takes you back a number of chapters. But remember when Eliezer went up to Haran to find a wife for Isaac? So he's saying, this is the same Laban that Eliezer had to deal with. So she's saying, go to my family. You'll be safe there. And stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he will forget what he's done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be reft of both in one day? Now, before we read verse 46, let's think about this for just a couple of minutes. Jacob and Rebecca got what they wanted, but what a price. Jacob has to flee. He has to run for his life. And it is a real possibility, and I think this is the right way to say it, Rebecca will never see Jacob again. She will die before Jacob comes back. It's 14 years till Jacob comes back. She will never see Jacob again. He will never see his mother again. He, he runs away and he comes under the tutelage of a man more deceptive, more manipulative, and more conniving than him, Laban. I don't know if you, if you don't know the story, you're going to find out about it. Laban is going to trick Jacob. He's going to connive and manipulate Jacob, and he is going to get a lot from Jacob. But... As with Abraham and with Isaac, Jacob will leave Padam Aram, a very rich man. And then God is ready to break Jacob of his character flaw. But I, what, I'm getting, what I want you to see is Jacob and his mother pay a very dear price for their duplicity. What's Rebecca's lineage? Uh, well... She is, uh, she is a relative of Abraham, Padam Aram. Her father was Bethuel. So I, I'm not, and he, well, I know that doesn't mean anything to us, but she is of or from the family that is related to Abraham. The, I mean, the extended family. Right. And so they're not Canaanites. Uh, I mean, you know, that's, that's why uh, Abraham wanted Eliezer to go up and get a, a wife for Isaac. She didn't want, he didn't want him to marry a Canaanite. 
And so it makes sense. What Rebecca is counseling her son to do makes sense. There's only one safe place you can go, and that's with my family. Way, way out. 400, almost 550 miles. And that that's safe haven. And so, but, you know, Jacob, it's just, he can't he can't take anything with him. All all that he had as being the you know as the birthright and now the blessing and none of that he can't take any of that with him. He has absolutely nothing. He's running for his life and he'll never see his mother again. He's in a perfect position for Laban to take advantage. Absolutely, and he will. And it's just and here's where and I don't think there's any reason for us to reach out of the conclusion. God has Jacob right where he wants him. And he says, God, it's almost like, God, okay, you the heel catcher, you the conniving one, I am going to show you how serious your duplicity is. It's now going to have a direct effect in your life. You're going to be running, and you're not going to the tutelage of a man who is far more manipulative and conniving than you are. It almost seems as if the deception runs in Rebecca's family. Well, don't forget Father Abraham, you know, down in Egypt, he said, This is my sister, this is my wife. You know, I mean, it's just, see, these patriarchs are, you are, you are getting, you're getting the true, accurate picture of human beings in a fallen world. They will make the decision to walk with God. They will make the decision to trust God. But they are fallen, broken people, and they will sometimes do things that are not pleasing to God. And not having any of you in mind, I'm just thinking of myself. That is exactly how I am. I want to walk with God. I trust God. But there are times where I do not depend on God. I, in effect, say to God, I can handle this one more. I got this one covered. And I'm, I'm being a little facetious. I'm not a little. I'm very facetious there. But that's where we are. And life is about learning dependence on the Lord. And learning that absolute trust and confidence in the Lord, that he's good, that he has my best interests at heart, and I can trust him. And that's one of the lessons we just have to learn. And if you're like me, I have to learn that every single day. I am constantly relearning that lesson. And so Jacob is right where God wants him to be. He is now going to suffer the consequences of his duplicity. And I have I thought as I was studying for this, I thought of Rebecca. Rebecca got what she wanted. She got the blessing for her boy, her favorite. But if we've understood this correctly, she will never see him again. You often wonder, she would, was it worth it? You know, I never, she will never see, she will never see the evidence of the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob. Now Jacob will see that blessing, but she, you know what? So she got what she wanted, but what price was that? In her life, you know, I don't have any doubt that Rebecca will be in heaven. But it's the, it's that you know here now what she must do is like when King David did what he did. He doesn't lose his relationship with God; he's restored. But he has to live with the consequences of what he did. 
And that is, that is the reality of the fallenness of our world. God's made his world in such a way that even the righteous, if they make an unwise decision or, or do things duplicitous or dishonest, God loves us, he'll take care of us, but we'll sometimes have to live with the consequences of what we choose to do. And that's where Isaac, excuse me, that's where Jacob is now. So the narrative now turns to Jacob heading up to Laban. He goes, now on your map, you don't have to pull it out, they're down here. He has to go all the way up here. It's almost a 600-mile trip. That's where he's headed. What chapter 27 is about, Jacob is leaving his home, and he has questions that are plaguing him. Am I really the covenant? You know, I don't have anything. I have no evidence of my covenant relationship with you, God. And so that's why chapter 27 becomes a really, really important chapter in Jacob's life. But as we conclude, let me just make two quick comments about chapter 27. One is the the dangers in a family of parental favoritism. And that is, that, that is a very real danger. What you see in chapter 27 is a very, very common thing. Parents kind of have favorites when you have more than one child. When you have only one child, that child's a favorite of both parents. But you have two or three, you, you sometimes find that. And that's, there's dangers to that. And this is just a very, very simple, practical lesson. Playing favorites among your children is not a wise thing. Example, Isaac and Esau, Jacob and Rebekah. That's not healthy. That's not wholesome. It has very serious consequences. But far more importantly in terms of the pragmatic, or excuse me, the practical lesson or practical application is reliance on the Lord to fulfill his promises is the way to live. That's the life of faith. Reliance on ourselves to get God's promises our way rarely works very well. God makes a promise. Trust him that he will follow through on the promise. Don't try to use your resources to get his promise. That's what Jacob and Rebecca did. And they pay a very, very serious consequence for that in their lives. God still gives the blessing. And he still keeps his word, but he helps them to see the way you desire to do this is not pleasing to me. So, all right? Yes, sir. Could you comment quickly on on, uh, verse 46? uh, Oh, yeah, we didn't uh, really. uh, Tell you what, remind me to do that next week because it's 10 of, I better quit here. Because that, it's, an important, it's a very important verse, and I, I can't just cover it in a minute. That's great. Thank you. I will uh, do that. Remind me to make sure I do it. Let me pray here as we, as we go. Lord, thank you for our study of chapter 27 and the importance of uh, just a very simple observation that seriousness of parental favoritism, that was not healthy, that was not good, but more importantly, the its significance and the worthwhile nature of letting you make the promise and letting you fulfill the promise 
to manipulate and connive, to be duplicitous, dishonest, deceitful, are not character traits that are pleasing to you. The end does not always justify the means. That's why wisdom dictates that we think carefully, we think wisely and with great discernment about things like that in life. What are the means we're using to get to the end? Is it dishonest, duplicitous, lack of integrity, conniving, manipulative, those ends, excuse me, those means to an end that may be a good end are not usually very pleasing to you. We are men who walk in faith. We are men of honesty, integrity. We are men that take seriously our loving obedience to you. And so we ask you to just help us to think carefully and be discerning about all aspects of our lives. And we ask your blessing on each one here. Give them a good rest of the week. Watch over them in their travels and their other responsibilities. And as we try to pray each time we're together, help us to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. amen. See you next week.